Hi, Seeking Plum here, pondering small and big questions. My, how history repeats itself. So today I picked up a book, uh, Plato, The Last Days of Socrates, and I was really struck by how the first page of the introduction really uh, reminded me a lot of society today, although it was talking about uh, hundreds of years ago. Anyway, I want to share with you just the first page partly to see your thoughts on it and then um, to commentate a little bit about it afterward. The introduction is written by the gentleman who also translated uh, Plato's work and his name is, I'm going to probably butcher this, Hugh Tredernick? Anyway, uh, this is the first page. The 5th century before Christ was a period of extraordinary activity and achievement in the Greek world. A new spirit of enterprise inspired by the defeat of the great Persian invasion led to rapid development and expansion in every department of life. This spirit had its focus in Athens where under the guidance of Pericles, political and commercial prosperity was crowned with the most perfect flowers of art and literature. But everywhere, men's minds were restlessly experimenting and reaching out for knowledge. By the middle of the century, science and philosophy, still indistinguishable and less than 150 years old, had made considerable progress, especially in the direction of physics. Lacking instruments of precision, such as the microscope, Greek thinkers could only proceed by simple observation and reasoning, yet they were already close to a reasonable atomic theory. But the mass of experience and collected information was not coordinated, and speculation followed different lines in different schools of thought, which had little in common except confidence in their own doctrines and a hearty contempt for the theories of others. The conflict of voices was stimulating but extremely confusing, and the ordinary man really did not know whom or what to believe. In this intellectual ferment there arose a new class of people called sophists or wise men. They were not, at least not essentially, philosophers or scientists, but professional itinerant teachers. Many were re really able and had something positive and valuable to impart, but others encouraged skepticism by stressing the two-sidedness of every question or undermined faith in real values by preaching a kind of subjectivism or relativism. On the whole, their outlook was at once superficial and practical. They said, in effect, knowledge is impossible, but I can show you how to make the most of yourself. So they aimed at producing cleverness and efficiency rather than wisdom and goodness, and they charged fees for their services, which shocked the philosophers, but was good psychology as well as good business since people take seriously what they have to pay for. In short, the old religious and moral ideals were giving way to a creed of materialistic opportunism, the voice of a prophet was badly needed. And there enters Socrates. This single page alone brought up some very interesting ideas. In some ways we haven't changed much. We still have that restless need and desire for knowledge. Now we have the information highway. We Google everything. We search Wikipedia for information all the time. Now we have devices. Hey Siri! And we can call out to Alexa or any other number of devices to answer our questions. The intro's author, Hugh, I'm just going to call him Hugh for ease, 
mentioned the massive experience and collected information that wasn't coordinated. And I still think we have that, but now it's exponentially larger. There is so much information on the internet and so much uh, experience on the planet because we have so many more people. Uh, our, our knowledge base of things we've learned over the last uh, many centuries uh, and the amount of data that's out there on the internet. But I also think that because it's all out there, it makes it harder to sift through it and also to find other similar groups of people to, to connect. You're probably thinking, what the hell is she talking about? This is somewhat of a comparing apples to oranges, I think, example, but um, for uh, University of Alberta here in Canada has been working on an AI project for several years now uh, that would be able to play uh, poker against a human opponent. And they've been using uh, Limit Hold'em uh, because it's a bit easier with fewer factors to determine with the goal of eventually getting to know Limit Hold'em that has a few more uh, variables involved. Uh, and, you know, it's been, uh, it's not been entirely, uh, uh, well, it's, it's complex, uh, you know, uh, problem. Anyway, more recently, uh, as far as I understand it, Elon Musk has uh, uh, developed a company called OpenAI, and his AI, um, learned a game called Dota 2 from the ground up in two weeks and it has beat uh, all of the top or many of the top human pro gamers who play this game very handily. Yes, the university had a much smaller budget than Elon Musk's company and so there's a bit of a discrepancy there. but. I'm just thinking of other groups that may be working on other projects that if they had um, found each other, knew each other, were working on things, how much easier would it be? For instance, between different countries, if they're not communicating, if they don't know they're working on it, even just to sharpen the ideas, right, to hone off maybe something that didn't work or something that did. Because sometimes you read an article that says, you know, this country all of a sudden developed this, and it seems like, wow, you know, we we might be behind in that area or so on. And and if we were all working together, how much further advanced would the entire globe be on any number of things? While I think that technology has helped us in many ways, I think it also has um, blown up the same problems we had centuries ago. By that I mean magnified. Back then, 5th century, it may have been a school of thought within a smaller community, you know, of a certain number of miles or kilometers. But now it could be within a certain state or a country, right? Because maybe the U.S. has a method for doing uh, this particular scientific um, activity or thing where um, another around the other side of the globe might be doing it differently, let's say in Japan or China. Like a surgical technique that might uh, decrease mortality rate in a certain procedure. I've sort of jumped all over, but uh, I just, I wonder if, if we couldn't, if we had difficulties with who to believe and what to believe then, and we still have this problem now, 
I mean, it's been hundreds of years, centuries. Like, are we, are we ever going to figure this out? Are we ever going to, like, start believing in, in the scientific method or, I, I, I don't know. Are we doomed to relive history again and again? After spending part of the day thinking about uh, the 5th century society of Plato and Socrates, I stumbled upon a Twitter moment this evening about a Babylonian tablet that's 3,700 years old. It seems there's been much debate over the past 100 years about its purpose and uh, what it is, what it does, what it's all about. But uh, now there's an Aussie mathematician that was able to crack the code. He determined that the Babylonians uh, developed trigonometry 1,500 years before the Greeks. They also say that it will make studying math easier today. Parenthetical comment, can I just say how it would be really cool to be able to live in some of these times or at least travel back to them? I would love to like sit in a room with, uh, I don't know, Plato, Socrates, any number of these people or sit in like Da Vinci's, uh, <laughs> you know, his workshop and watch him work, listen to him talk, ask him questions, any of these people, some of these minds. Anyway, okay, back to the point. The tablet. Okay, so a particular tweet in that Twitter moment caught my eye and it was put out by, I'm not going to butcher this, I'm just going to spell it for you, at K-E-R-E-M-B-R-U-L-E-E and it reads, the Babylonian tablet demonstrates how scientific knowledge is not independent of history or the politics or ideology that makes that history. So when I read something like this, I tend to ask questions, usually variations of why, like does this make sense, could this be true, things like that. So does this tablet demonstrate how scientific knowledge is not independent of history? And I think that could be true, and I'll say that for two reasons. Actually I'm going to modify that. I think there's definitely one reason why I think scientific knowledge is not independent of history, and that is because we are constantly adapting with science. We are constantly learning. At one time we thought the earth was flat, we thought the sun revolved around the earth, and as we learn, we change and build on the things we learn. We adapt our methods of learning. All of that builds on it. The knowledge we learn, the methods of our study, and so on. But at that time in history, that's where we were. At this time in history, this is where we are. But hundreds of years in the future, we will be somewhere different. So yeah, I can see scientific knowledge not being independent of history. As far as scientific knowledge not being independent of politics and ideology that makes that history, that one I don't necessarily see eye to eye with. Today, scientific research has really been politicized. What is learned by our scientists is not exactly what we receive on the other end of this, um, I, I don't know exactly what you want to call it, but this pipeline, right, that, that it travels, information pipeline from the scientists to the average Joe and Jane. 
they do the research, they pump out this abstract with all the information in it, in the technical jargon, and so on. Journalists then try to put it into layman's terms, but that changes language. And then they also want to get clicks. They want the clickbait, right? So they will change it so that it seems more interesting as well. And so uh, they change, uh, sometimes the, the meaning comes off slightly differently. Not necessarily a lot, but it's kind of like the game of telephone, right? Just that little bit. And then if a journalist decides to get their information from another journalist rather than going to the abstract themselves, it continues to worsen. Again, back to the game of telephone. If politicians want to make a point, then they pick the perfect article to fit their agenda. I mean, I think even we're guilty of doing that too, right? If we want to make a point to a friend, we tend to pick the article that says exactly what we want it to say. But that doesn't mean that the scientific knowledge itself is political or has an ideology behind it. Science has methods and uses measurements and has its processes. It doesn't have an agenda. It seeks answers. It doesn't, doesn't say, if I don't like this answer, I'm going to change it. I was just reflecting on, you know, how do we bring back the reputation of science and people with uh, higher education? I've seen several cartoons and comics posted by scientists and researchers and those with PhDs um, about their frustrations and basically having to find you know, humor in the fact that their research doesn't come out the other end of that pipeline the same way it went in. At the same time, uh, here in Canada, I've seen ads by various news channels talking about how their reputation for presenting the truth is all they have. Somehow these things have to come together. I don't exactly know where the problem lies, whether it has to do with uh, this desperate need to earn clicks and make money from it or, or where it is, but somehow or another we have to find a, a, a solution. In the 5th century people struggled with knowing who and what to believe and then people came in and offered relativism and subjectivity and offered it uh, at a price and somehow this touched something psychologically that made people feel more confident in it. Keyword being feel. Here we are today where we have uh, facts and knowledge versus what feels right. It's the same thing, isn't it? Is this an age-old question? Are we always going to have this dilemma? Knowledge versus feelings and what feels right, what feels true? Does it come down to true with a capital T or true with a with a lowercase t? I mean, what what is this? What is what is it we are um, facing? I mean, we can brainstorm up all kinds of of ways to try to address explaining things or communication devices and so on. But is this really a psychological thing or a, a, a physiological thing? I've read studies, uh, different studies over the past couple of years that talk about how uh, uh, there are 
different types of brains and how we uh, uh, see things, uh, experience things, and we end up then on the different ends of the spectrum, politically speaking, um, and also how we approach things, whether we are quick to respond or whether we take longer to reason things out. Not that I, not either one of them is bad or good, it's just how we approach things. If it comes down to physiological and psychological differences, are those really things that can be changed or should be changed? At first blush, I'm going to say, no, they shouldn't be changed. And I'm going to say that any decision, let's say, in the government should be made by a group of individuals made up of both types of people on either end of the spectrum people who need time to reason things out and people who might be act who might act a little bit more quickly because you need both sides to balance each other out but the key is they need to be able to work together respect each other i feel like i skipped across the tips of several topics today i think i'm just going to wrap it up and leave it here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these things, uh, whether you think I'm completely off my rocker or you have any input or insight or anything. Uh, I, I, I would love to hear it. Please let me know. Thanks. Hi, thanks for listening. I'd love to hear from you, be it a comment, call, or clap. Let me know your thoughts here on Anchor or find me on Twitter at Seeking Plum.